Oh, you've got an opinion about it? Here's how it happened, though. The actual claim was useless. Little better than a tailing pile. After I bought it, I buried maybe twenty pounds worth of pure ore in the gravel, scattering it all about, then directed Quee to begin his digging. Quee finds it all right. At the end of the week, he goes to have it weighed at the camp station like all the other fellows. This is before the gold escort, you remember, back when the bankers had their stations along the river and the buyers worked alone. So when my claim comes up and my gold is weighed, the bankers ask me if I want to bank it right there. I say, no, not yet. I'll take it back pure. My story goes that I'm keeping it back for a private buyer who's going to export it altogether as a lump sum. Or some such tale, I don't remember now. Well, after the stuff is weighed and the value recorded, I gather it all back up again, wait for the cover of darkness, creep back to the claim, and shake it out a second time over the gravel. I can't believe you, said Frost. Believe it or not, as you please, said Mannering. Due credit to the Chinaman, of course. This happened maybe four or five times, and each week he came back with the exact same pile, more or less. He found it all, no matter how much I messed up the gravel, no matter how deep the grit settled, no matter the weather or what have you. Worked like a Trojan. That's one thing I'll say for the Chinese. When it comes to pure old-fashioned work, you can't fault them. But you never told him what you were doing. Mannering was shocked. Of course not, he said. Confess my sins? Of course I didn't. Anyway, to all appearances, it looked like the Aurora was pulling twenty pounds a week. Nobody knew it was the same twenty pounds over and over. She just looked like a good, steady claim. Mannering had begun his tale in a posture of some exasperation, but his natural affinity for storytelling could not long be held in check, and it was enjoyable to him to recount a proof of his own ingenuity. He relaxed into his narrative, thumping the brim of his stovepipe hat against his leg. But then Quee started to catch on, he said. Must have been watching, or maybe he just figured me out. So what does he do? Cunning fox! He starts retorting the dust each week in a little crucible of his own. Then he brings it to the camp station already smelted and done up in these one-pound blocks about so big. There's no throwing that back among the stones. No matter, I thought. I had plenty of other claims for sale, and the other ones were pulling good dust. I could shuffle it around. So I started banking Quee's squares as returns against the Dream of England claim, and every week I'd salt the Aurora just as before, only I'd use Dream of England dust, not Aurora dust, you see. Aurora had been pulling twenty pounds a week until then. She had to maintain the same yield or it would look like her profits had started to fall away, and I wouldn't get my profit when I sold. But then Quee got wise to that, Mannering went on, raising his voice in a final cadence, and the bloody devil starts carving the name of the plot, Aurora, into his little squares. I can't bank that against the dream of England without raising a few eyebrows, can I? Would you believe it? The cheek of him! I don't believe it, said Frost, 
who was still feeling very much betrayed. Well, there it is anyway, said Mannering. That's the story. That's when Emery arrived. And? And what? Well, what happened? You know what happened. I sold him the Aurora. But the claim was a duffer, you said. Yes, said Mannering. You sold him a duffer claim? Yes. But he's your friend, said Charlie Frost, and even as he spoke the words, he regretted them. How pathetic it sounded to reprimand a man like Mannering about friendship. Mannering was in the august high noon of his life. He was prosperous and well-dressed, and he owned the largest and most handsome building on Revel Street. There were gold nuggets hanging from his watch chain. He ate meat at every meal. He had known a hundred women, maybe even a thousand, maybe more. What did he care about friends? Frost found that he was blushing. Mannering studied the younger man for a moment and then said, Here's the heart of it, Charlie. A four-thousand-pound fortune, smelted and every square of it stamped with the word Aurora, has turned up in a dead man's house. We don't know why, and we don't know how. But we do know who, and that who is my old friend Quee in Canieri. All right, this is why we have to go to Chinatown, so as to ask him a question or two. Frost felt that Mannering was still concealing something from him. But the fortune itself, he said, how do you account for it? If Aurora is a duffer, then where did all of that gold come from? And if Aurora's not a duffer, then who's cooking the books to make her appear as if she's worth nothing at all? The magnate put his hat on. All I know, he said, running his finger and thumb around the brim and back again, is that I've got a score to settle. No man makes a fool of Dick Mannering more than once, and the way I see it, this Johnny Chink has had a jolly good try. Come along, or are you turning yellow on me? No man likes to be called a coward, and least of all a man who is feeling downright cowardly. In a cold voice, Frost said, I'm not yellow in the least. Good, said Mannering. No harsh feelings, then. Come along. Frost thrust his arms into his coat. I only hope it doesn't come to blows, he said. We'll see about that, said Mannering. We'll see about that. Come on, Holly. Come on, girl. Giddy up. We've got business in the Hockatika Gorge. As Frost and Mannering stepped out of the Prince of Wales Opera House, tugging down their hats against the rain, Thomas Balfour was turning into Weld Street, some three blocks to the south. Balfour had spent the last hour and a half at the Deutsches Gasthaus on Camp Street, where a pile of sauerkraut, sausage and brown gravy, a seat before an open fire, and a period of uninterrupted contemplation had helped to refocus his mind upon Alistair Lauderback's affairs. He quit the Gasthaus, refreshed, and made immediately for the office of the West Coast Times. The shutters were drawn inside the box window, and the front door closed. Balfour tried the handle. It was locked. Curious, he stamped around to the rear of the building, to the small apartment where Benjamin Lerventhal, the paper's editor, lived. He listened for a moment at the door, and hearing nothing, cautiously turned the doorknob. The door opened easily, and Balfour found himself face to face with Lerventhal himself,